The scripture reading for today is from Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Helen. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see uh, you this morning, this beautiful weather. Uh, so thanks for coming out and being with us. We continue in a series in this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. And we've said over and over again that the centerpiece of this, of this piece of literature is the word righteousness. You find it there in chapter 1 if you have a Bible, verses 16 and 17. And the question comes to us, how can we be right with God? That's really what this book is about. And that is the most important question. We, were, we are created beings, and the one who created us is the fuel that we run on, to borrow from C.S. Lewis. And so in Romans 1, Paul labored to show how the unbelieving world is under God's wrath and curse. The problem that Paul's turned to here in chapter 2 is that the Jews, the religious people, looked at those irreligious people that he had been describing there in chapter 1, and they began to draw distinctions. They're bad, but we're good. They have, you know, wrong theology, but, but we, we have right theology, whatever the case might be. And they began to rely upon that difference, that it really meant something to them, that it must have meant something to God, too. That we're right with God because we're different. That's really, that's really the prevailing idea. And that, the whole argument of Romans 2 then is that the religious person, this is what Paul's laboring to say, the religious person who believes this way about himself is really at the end of the day no different than the irreligious person. Both are under God's wrath. Both need salvation. Both have failed to obtain rightness 
problem is just that it's obvious, isn't it, in the one case. It's obvious in the idolatry and immorality of, of irreligious people in the grips of sexual dysfunction and out-of-control cravings for evil. They're obviously not right, but, but we're the good people. Right? We don't do those things. We don't act like that. We follow God's law. We're moral. Surely we're right, right? And that's the idea that Paul's trying to deconstruct, that the solution to doing bad is to start doing good, that the way to rightness, as, as Paul's after here, is through moral effort. Now, we said last week, through being better than, that that's kind of our, our, at the end of the day, our strategy, that if we can just outperform, I don't have to, I don't have to you know, run away from God, I just got to run faster than you, right? I, I just got to outperform you, that's all I got to do, and I'm going to be okay. And if that's what you believe, then you need to hear me this morning say, you might be religious, but you're not yet a Christian, because a Christian is a person who knows that, um, that, that, that who knows the truth that Paul's building to. There's a truth that Paul's building to here in these beginning chapters of this letter. And the truth that he's building to is this, that there is, verse 10 of chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. That's where Paul wants us to get. That's where he's laboring to take us through all the arguments he's making here in chapters 1 and chapter and 2. That there is none righteous, no, not one. And so the only way to find the righteousness we need is to look outside of ourselves. Uh, to look to God who gives righteousness through Jesus Christ to those who know they have none. So the righteousness we need is there in verse 16 of chapter 1, the righteousness of God that comes through faith. Now, in order to reach out in faith for that righteousness, which is what Paul so desperately wants us to do, you have to come to see that you have none of your own. And so you see Paul's strategy here. He's taking away, he's taking away whatever comfort we might have that we are okay in, in ourselves. He's taking away the righteousness that we, that we feel to be true about ourselves. Uh, that's his goal. And so he continues along that line by introducing, in this passage, this idea of judgment. You see that beginning in verse 6. We come to, we come to this, this theological concept that at the end of time, that there's going, to be, there's going to be a judgment. Talking to religious people there in verse 5, he says, because of your hardened and impenitent hearts, in other words, their judgmental spirit and towards the sin of other people, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so that's the idea of judgment day. That what Christians believe is that at the end of history, we will all stand before God. The Bible says that on that day, there'll be no words. There'll be no rationalizations. There'll be no excuses. We'll be stripped of any semblance of righteousness and laid bare before God. And here's what, here's what Paul wants. Paul Paul doesn't want us to wait until that day to have that experience. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? He doesn't want us to wait until we stand before God at the end of history after our lives are over and we've been resurrected at the end. When we stand before him, he doesn't want us to wait until that time to have that experience. He introduces the trauma, because that's what it is, the trauma of the reality of that future judgment to us now so that we can have the experience now. That's what this whole section of Romans is about. Paul gets to the end in, in verse 19 of chapter 3. Again, if you have a Bible, and he states his goal. He says, I'm doing all of this. Everything I've written all the way to 319 is so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's what he wants. 
That, that's, where, that's, the, that's the place he's trying to get us, where our mouths are stopped and we realize that we're laid bare and we're, we're completely accountable to God. And, and here's the thing, because that's the doorway of faith. That is the very doorway to faith, that when you have no more excuses, no evidence to put forth, and all you can say is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the experience Paul's trying to induce. And he does it by introducing here and beginning in verse 6 and moving forward this idea of judgment. Now, this is hard stuff. This is a hard one this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, uh, welcome. It's a tough day today. This is some scary stuff. And uh, there's a lot of material here, and I've had to pick and choose because we couldn't possibly get through it all. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this theme of judgment under these three headings because I think they're all here. We're going to first, we're going to look and see how Paul um, brings out the evidence that will be brought forth on the day of judgment, our works. He says in verse 6, he will render each to each according to his works. Secondly, we're going to look at the extent to which this text says we're going to be judged. We see there at the very end of verse 16 that, it's, that he judges the secrets of men. And then thirdly, we're going to see that there's an expectation that is true only for Christians, only for believers of what that day will be like. There's an expectation that can be ours if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that ultimately the day of judgment will not just be a day of judgment. It will be a day of mercy also. And so it's very convenient, right? Three E's, evidence, extent, expectation. That means the Spirit's going to move this morning powerfully. And so let's look at this together, okay? First, as we talk about this theme of judgment, first the evidence. So look there, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Now, here's what I'm going to argue, okay? you got to stay with me because some of you are going to disagree, and i got to be really careful because you're, you're going to hear me say things that I'm not intending to say. I want to say to you is that verse there in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, that that applies to Christians too. Now, remember, Paul is writing to religious people. He's writing to the Jews who are looking at non-Jewish people and are saying, we're good. We're good, but you're in trouble because we're Jews and, and you're not. And this whole chapter is meant to teach a very specific lesson, is that what matters is not Jewishness or non-Jewishness. Those, those categories really aren't what are the most important thing. What matters is obedience. And in the Bible, faith is measured by obedience. So remember Paul's goal. This is the very first sermon we preached, and we took a whole week to do it. At the beginning of Romans and at the end, he says his goal in writing is the obedience of faith. Do you remember that? He wants these people to be obedient. He wants the obedience of faith is what he's after for these people. And so we see judgment according to works, even for Christians. Now, here's what we need to say. Works, then, is not the basis for God's judgment. They are the evidence. Do you notice how I, I picked that word on purpose there? It's a really important distinction to make. I use the word intentionally in the outline because I want to I put this, this point forward, okay? So note what's not on the table this morning. If you've been around the church for a long time, justification by faith is not on the table. We'll come back to that in a minute, but we should say it here too. I'm not arguing for salvation by works. The whole argument of Romans, and particularly these first three chapters, is verse 20 of chapter 3. For the work, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I probably need to, get an, I need to make sure you're awake, okay? So amen just means that's right, or you can say tell it preacher or whatever you want to say, but I want to know that you're on, I want to know that you're on the same page with me, okay? 3.20 says... By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you with me on that? Okay, there you go. We believe that. That's not in question. Okay? We are justified freely by his grace as a gift, 324 says. 
So the righteousness that we need to withstand God's judgment is the righteousness of God. And in Christ, it is given to us freely as a gift. We are not saved on the basis of works. We believe that. Thank you. There you go. We are not saved on the basis of works. But works are the evidence that we have been saved. Works are not the cause, they are not the grounds of our justification, but they are the fruit of our justification. And so the doctrine that we're working out, this is an old Puritan sermon this morning, right? The doctrine that we're working out in this sermon this morning is that this text teaches that judgment is on the basis of works, even though justification is not. Judgment is on the basis of works, even though Salvation is not, and we have to, and the whole of the Christian life, and really my work before all of you this morning is to hold those two things in tension with one another. There's a story in the Gospels that perhaps illustrates this principle. In Mark 11, Mark's account of the triumphal entry, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and, he, and this is one of these things where it just doesn't fit into our flannel graph picture of, of who Jesus was. He's coming into Jerusalem and he's hungry. That in itself, the, the Son of God was hungry. Hungry enough, he was hangry, by the way, in this particular incident. Because he sees a fig tree in the distance and the text says that it was in leaf. It's a, it's a little detail in the text that's really important. And the reason it's important is because um, the fig trees in that time, in that place in the world, grew that grew there... The fruit always came before the leaf. And so he saw this fig tree that had leaves from a distance. He turned aside because he was hungry. And because there were leaves on the tree, he expected to find fruit. The leaves were there, so there should have been fruit. When he got to the tree, there were no, there were no figs. And do you remember what he did? It's just amazing. He curses the tree. And it withers and dies. Like, that's not Jesus, meek and mild, gentle, sweet. That's not sweet baby Jesus. I mean, that, like, he was hungry, there were no figs, he zapped it. The tree died. He ju- and here, he judged the tree for its lack of fruit. It's such a fascinating little scene. It's really a sermon in itself. The details are for another time. It's an illustration for us this morning. It's an illustration of this principle of judgment that we're, trying to, that we're trying to deal with. And so a principle that we could apply would be this. If you're a Christian, your life will be full of good fruit. Love and peace and patience and faithfulness and kindness to others and so forth. Not just leaves. Fruit. Like Jesus in the parable on the day of judgment, God comes looking for fruit. That's what judgment is about. It's everywhere in the Bible. Listen to some Matthew 16 27, for example, for the Son of Man is going to come in the second coming, and then he will repay to each one according to what he has done. That's, I mean, that, it can't be any clearer than that. Or the parable of the talents. Do you remember the story where the master gives each of his servants a certain amount of money, and he tells them, go and, and invest the money and make me a profit. And, you know, the, the, the large majority of the servants do that, and they increase the, the, the investment the master has made, and he tells them, well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's the one servant who does nothing with the master's investment, and that servant, we're told in Matthew 25, 30, was cast into outer darkness. It's the language of judgment. Or the parable of the sheep and the goats, where the two groups of people are separated uh, because of the way they care for the sick and the poor. And we're told one group 
goes away to eternal punishment and the other to eternal life. And then there's the passage in 1 Corinthians, or, yeah, Corinthians 3, 11 and 2 Corinthians that teaches that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him, due to what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These are passages we have to come to terms with. They teach very clearly that judgment is on the basis of work. On the day of wrath, chapter 2, verse 5 here in Romans, the day of judgment, God will render to each one, all of mankind, Christians too, according to his works. That's the teaching. And let me say, if you have a theological grid that doesn't, that, that doesn't fit into, you need to stretch the grid to fit it in. You don't start with theology and come to the text. You, you let the text fill out your theology. To be careful. And so he goes from the general statement there in verse 6 of chapter 2 to in verses 7 through 10, applying it specifically to two contrasting different groups of people. So follow along with the argument. So verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And then verse 7, he says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And then he says in verse 8, and, and then he contrasts that group with those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. So we could say all of humanity is divided into the, these two categories. There are no shades or gradations for our purposes this morning or for Paul's. There are two types of people with two very different outcomes. And so let's look at each group for just a minute. The first group, uh, we're told God gives to this group eternal life, verse 7. The second group, verse 8, they get wrath and fury. And then verse 9 and 10, to finish out this section, are just restatements of the same principle in the opposite order, that those who do evil are bound, you'll see there verse 9, for tribulation and distress, and those who do good, glory and honor and peace. So these two classes of people distinguished by two different considerations. This is John Stott who says, you see in each of these people they have a specific goal and they have specific works. They have a specific thing they're seeking and then that seeking leads to a certain kind of doing and it's contrasted in two very different ways. So verse seven, let's look. The first group of people seek glory and honor and immortality. Those three words together describe their goal which is what Paul says later in the chapter in verse 29, that his, this, these people are the people whose praise is not from men but from God. In other words, this is a, this is a group of people. These, this is a you know, kind of person who is seeking not glory from man but glory from God. I mean, use whatever image you want to, a crown or um, you know, a, rewar a reward of some kind. The, the Bible's teaching here that there is a glory and honor that God will give on this day when he gathers the nations before him that every man give an account to him. And that is what these people are after. That, that commendation, that glory from God, that sense of well done, good and faithful servant, servant that he will give out on that day. That's what they're seeking. That's what they're after. More than anything else in their life, they're aimed at that. And so their lives are full of, we see their patient well-doing. In other words, they're energetic and they're enduring in their kindness and goodness to others. As a general rule, not perfectly. Not perfectly, not all the time, but the general scope of their life is humble, unselfish love for others. Not needing their name in lights, storing up treasures in heaven through generosity that too often goes unnoticed, and so forth. But then... That's the first group. Then there's the second group. And these are a group of people who are seeking something very different. The first, seeking glory and immortality and honor from God. Very simply, verse 8, we're told that this second group of people is just self-seeking. 
It's the perfect translation. And it's a word, by the way, that is only here in the Bible. There's a, this is the only place that it occurs in the entire Bible. But in the other ancient Greek texts, we know from those sources it refers to someone who seeks social or political clout for private gain rather than the social good. So someone running for public office that really just loves the kicks of being in the spotlight and is not really concerned about doing any good to society. We probably need to bring that one back in our day and time, don't we? There you go. That got an amen. Justification by faith? Eh. No. That, definitely. Definitely. Right? That's a problem. It's something that is, that is off kilter. It's, it should not be, is what, Paul, is what Paul is saying here. And so, you have the sense of this group self-seeking, and so their lives are void of the things that the, that the first group was, was true of them. Now, what we're told is that judgment is going to sort these true groups out. But which of the two, as you think about your life, which of the two do you belong to? It's an important question to ask. It's an important question to ask and answer, not because we're saved by works, okay? We're saved by grace through faith alone and not works. You with me? You follow me? We together? We got to say that. But if you have been saved... What Jesus is doing in your life is making it possible for you to live like the first group and not the second. And we prove we belong to Christ by living as a general rule, not perfectly, like that first group of people. And the judgment then won't decide who is a Christian and who is not on the basis of what is reviewed. It will just bring the truth to light. That's the teaching. So John Stott is very helpful here again. He says that the judgment is a public event. Of course, God already knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. But on the day of judgment, he makes it public. It's revealed. You see that word? You don't, it's, it's not printed for you, but it's in, in verse 5 of chapter 2. This, the, it's going to be revealed. In other words, what, that's part of what judgment day is, is the, the revealing of what has remained hidden until that time. It's a public verdict that's going to be passed. And, of course, a public verdict will require public, verifiable evidence. And the public evidence that will be put forth for the justification that God bestows upon us will be our works. And so Stott says, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. So works are not the basis of the judgment. They are the evidence put forth for the judgment. If you belong to Jesus, there will be patient well-doing as a result of your seeking glory and honor from God that God will put forth as the evidence of your union with Christ on the day of judgment's works. Don't save. They are the evidence of the true power that saves. Evidence. But that brings us to our second point. And that is that in order to produce these kinds of works that will be demanded on the day of judgment, you have to know that even though judgment is according to works, justification is not. Salvation is not. You have to know that on your own, you could never produce works that would stand up to God's scrutiny. No one passes the test because, because of what this text teaches here. And you see it down, look down at the very end in verse 16. We're told there that God doesn't just judge outwardly. Verse 16, he judges the secrets of men. And that's the, that phrase is key. Because if ever you were tempted to begin to trust in your works, that little phrase stops you dead in your tracks. Many will come to me. Do you remember this in Matthew chapter uh, 7? Jesus says, many will come to me 
saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do such and such? And he will answer, yes, but I knew your secrets. Now, that's, my, that's my paraphrase. But if you come to God with your good works, you won't measure up because he knows your secrets. His gaze pierces to the heart. He does not judge by outward appearance. The scripture says he judges rightly. We, you and I, hardly ever judge rightly because we can't see past the outward appearance. And can we, we ought to know that, right? We ought to know that about ourselves. We're called to judge, but our judgments are hardly ever in, you know, righteous. They're hardly ever right because we can't possibly see past skin and bone. We can't see into the depths of the heart. We can't see everything in the past that led to the, to the thing that we're dealing with, nor can we see how it will resolve in the future. But he, he judges rightly because he sees to the heart. He sees past the things we do to the reasons why. He knows the story that brought us to that place and the story that will unfold from that place moving forward. The hidden inner motivations and the desires of the heart are an open book to him. So that Hebrews 4.12 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And 1 Corinthians 4.5 says that he will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Does that freak anybody out? Does that scare you just a little bit? If it doesn't, can I tell you, you need to like take your pulse really quick. Make sure you're alive. That should put a fright in you. It should cause a shiver to go down your spine. That he will disclose and bring to light the things now hidden. And the purposes of the heart will be laid bare. What it means is, is that in the judgment we will be seen for what we really are. There will be no more pretending. Everything that we've been able to keep hidden will be brought to light and God will see all the way to the bottom of us. See, before we begin to rely upon our works, we have to come to terms with what this is teaching and what, what this whole text really, really goes into. And it's, we have to make sense of both what Paul refers to here as the inwardness and the intuitiveness of the law. And both irreligious and religious people are prone to do this. They're prone to downplay and, and try to rely upon their own works. And so let's look again at the two types of people Paul's addressing here in Romans 2. And the first is just the religious person who says something like this. Well, I follow the rules, you know. I obey the Ten Commandments. I'm a good moral person. I'm not like those other people. Remember, remember the beginning of chapter 2, which uh, Helen read again, the people wagging their fingers at others and saying, man, I, I, at least I'm not like you. You should be ashamed of yourself doing the things that you do. And what's Paul say about them? If you look back up there again, if you have, you know, there in the text in verses 1 and 2, he says, you judge others and condemn yourselves because you're guilty of the same things that you're condemning them of. In other words, he says, he says it this way, all who sin under the law, verse 23, will be judged by the law. He says, you guys got the law, huh? Well, that's, that's great. But is that your strategy? Your strategy is, hey, we have the law, we have the rules, we're going to obey the rules and we'll be okay in the end. If, don't you know? If you've got the law, you're going to be judged by the law. Or to put it another way, if you think obeying the law is going to get you into heaven, you don't understand the law. You have to come to terms with the inwardness of the law. The inwardness of the law. What do I mean? Well, go back. If you have a Bible, go back to chapter 1, verses 29 through 32, where Paul starts to list and, and all of the 
the awful things that the people he is describing there were guilty of, uh, this list of sins. And notice they're almost all not behaviors, but inner heart attitudes, things like envy and greed and malice and so forth. And so the people there in chapter 1 are these immoral pagans. They're worshiping idols. The people in chapter 2 are the good, moral, religious people. But what Paul's saying is the two are no different from one another. The, the, the people in chapter 2 are no different than the people in chapter 1 because even though they're religious, their lives are still full of the same inner heart attitudes. They just look better on the outside. But on the inside, they're just as bad. They're just as sinful. Uh, it wasn't until um, college that I, I really uh, got serious about my faith. Par- parents who were sending kids off to school, uh, you know, or have recently, I had to go to Florida State to learn to fall in love with Jesus, which is a miracle in itself, right? Because at the time, it was the number one party school in the nation. And, um, and, but it's what happened for me. My freshman year, I got excited about evangelism. And because the people in my campus ministry, we were talking about it. And so we would go and do So naturally, what did I do? I sat down and wrote my best friend from high school a letter. And this is pre-email. Okay, I'm that old. And so I wrote him this letter to tell him what a big sinner he was and that he needed to give his life to Jesus like I had. You can imagine how that went over. Literally, I wrote a letter and put it in the mail. Does that not feel like the weirdest thing in the whole world? And then, like, waited on a reply, you know, for, like, weeks or however that worked. I don't even remember. <laughs> I can't imagine what it must have been like for him, uh, for his best friend to write a letter like that, for him to open that. But I remember he wrote me back. And I remember, I remember some of the things he said in his letter. He was defensive. Um, but I remember him saying, you know, I, I don't know, you're, you're worried, you don't need to be worried about me. Stop being so worried about me. I'm, I'm not a sinner. I've never killed anybody. You know, I've never done any of that stuff. Something to that effect. Uh, he grew up Roman Catholic, so he knew there were rules. and He was confident that he had done a pretty good job at keeping them. And, and neither he nor I at the time had any idea about the inwardness of, law, of the law. Do you know what I mean? When I talk about the inwardness of the law, if you think when the law says don't murder, all it means is don't murder, you don't understand the law. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said the law, the law says don't murder, but I tell you if you're filled with hate or you're disrespectful and you go around insulting people, you're breaking the commandment. The same goes for adultery. You may have never committed adultery, but <clears throat> looking lustfully in the, is hard adultery. Or with generosity, you might say, you know, thou shalt not steal. Well, I'm not a thief. Well, you may not be a thief, but are you a generous person or are you stingy? See, here's the issue. Murder is the tree. But a tree grows from an acorn. And if murder is the tree, what's the acorn? What's things like superiority and and hubris and arrogance and contempt? And it's true. If I could write my friend a letter again, I would have said something like, it's true. You may have never killed anybody, but have you ever felt hatred in your heart? Have you ever spoken cruelly? about someone, God judges the secrets of men. Not just the trees of sin, but the acorns of sin too. And so if you're a religious person, then one of the things you really have to wrestle with is what this passage is teaching about the inwardness of the law. But then there's the person who says, you know, I didn't grow up with religion. I didn't know about all the rules. I'm just doing the best I can, you know. And I really think at the end of the day, God will go easy on me. He'll understand. That person, that person really fails to, to comprehend the other, the other teaching here and about the intuitiveness of the law. That there is an intuitiveness about the law that's true of every single one of us. That even those who don't know God's law, those chapter 
2 verse 12 there, those without God's law, what we're taught is that even those people know something intuitively about it. Verse 15, it's written on their hearts, Paul says. It's in the conscience. There's an internal moral compass. And the moral, even the most diehard atheist can't get away from the internal objection to wrong that the conscience provides. Calvin called it a seed of religion that God placed in every one of us to lead us to the gospel. And so it's fascinating because where you see this most clearly is in the way we judge one another. Again, what Paul describes up in verses 1 and 2, it's why I included that part of the reading this morning because we really do need to reflect back on the beginning of the chapter. He's saying not only do religious people do this, but irreligious people do this as well. And I think you probably know this, right? That those who preach tolerance in our culture are often some of the most intolerant, self-righteous people you could ever meet in your life. So how will God deal with people who say, you know, there's no law? I'm just doing the best I can. How will he deal with them on judgment day? Francis Schaeffer used an analogy to explain the teachings of Romans 2, and it really probably is a sin to preach through Romans 2 and not use this analogy at some point, so here, here we go, okay? Because it's so powerful and so, and so helpful. He said, imagine if you were, if, when you were born, God put an invisible tape recorder around your neck, and you can't feel it, so you don't even know it's there, but they're special devices, and so the only time, the, only time, uh, the device records is any time you start to make moral judgments about others. All throughout your life, whenever and whatever occasions you begin to make a moral judgment about someone else, the, 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 the recorder comes on and it records whatever, whatever the moral judgment is that you're making. So, you know, and then you come to Judgment Day, and on Judgment Day you stand before God and you say, I didn't know about this rule or that rule. No one ever taught me about the Bible. It's not fair for you to judge me like that because I didn't grow up in a Christian home or, you know, or I lived in a place where we didn't even know about uh, Christianity or whatsoever and then what God will do is on the day of judgment he'll press play on the tape recorder and you'll listen to all the moral judgments you've made about other people and God will say this this and this alone will be the basis of my judgment of you how well you kept the moral standards that you proved you understood by constantly applying them to everybody else except yourself It should be kind of quiet. You accuse this person of lying. Did you ever stretch the truth? Do you remember that time when you were angry at your friend who was selfish? Did, did you ever put your own interest ahead of someone's needs? I mean, can you imagine? We would all stand condemned because not only do we not live up to God's standards, we don't even live up to our own standards. The error is that we only apply those standards to others and not to ourselves. And so when you see the inwardness and when you see the intuitiveness of the law, both taught here in Romans 2, it's clear what Paul says. By works, no human being will be justified in his sight. But let me ask a question. What about you? As you think about Judgment Day, where does your hope lay? It's an important question to ask and answer. And so, as we come to the last part here. So judgment will be on the basis of works, but justification is not. The only, the only way you will be able to produce the kind of works God is looking for on Judgment Day is to know that on your own you can't. And so the practical application of the text is this. Knowing he will render to each one, even Christians according to his works, should cause you to renounce sin 
Every time you're tempted, you should stop and think, I'm going to have to answer for God, to God for this, right? This, it may be hidden now. Nobody else may be around in the moment, but it's going to come to light and be, and, and be brought. God's going to bring this up with me on judgment day. And it should cause a powerful sense of you saying, I'm going to forsake that. I'm walking away from it. That really is. Are you, does it, has anybody ever had that experience? I mean, that is part of what this is supposed to do, to know that we are going to stand before him one day to give an account for everything we do should in the moment cause us to forsake, forsake sin. And that's why you can't throw it out. It's a powerful tool for sanctification, to forsake sin. But also, it, this, this idea of judgment is here to help us forsake righteousness as well. That is, that as you strive for obedience, to know that no matter how far you get, it will never be enough. That your hope for that day can't be your obedience. It has to be something else. It has to be something else entirely. And we see that also at the very end of the text here when it says, verse 16, if you're a Christian, your hope is that God judges secrets too. Yes, it's true. But look what it says. God judges the secrets of men and finish the sentence for me by Jesus Christ. He judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, which means that God does not look at you without considering Jesus. And he will not look at you on that day without considering him either. And that changes your expectation. So this last point, if you're a Christian, it changes your expectation of the day of judgment. If you're a Christian, okay, from we've been talking about everything we have in common, Christian and non-Christian to this point. But from this point on, this is something that only applies to people who have put their faith in Jesus, who have intentionally put their hope and trust in him. In, if that's you, then in judgment, there will be mercy. And the reason we have such a hard time with this idea of judgment, it seems uh, to me, is because it cancels out, it seems to cancel out the other doctrines that we hold dear. So justice and mercy, which we, you know, we often wrestle through, seem to be at odds. And so we falsely think that we have to choose between one or the other. So if God is just, then there can't be mercy. But if he's merciful, then, then he can't possibly judge. And that's why people say this idea of judgment can't apply to Christians, you either get judgment or mercy. It's one or the other. It can't, can't be both. And I just want to say to you, I think that's wrong. Because according to Paul, the gospel actually changes the conjunction. Instead of judgment or mercy, Paul says the gospel makes it so that you get judgment and mercy. Which is why those words, by Jesus Christ there, those three words in verse 16 are so, so important. Because they reconcile the two concepts of justice and mercy. How? The psalmist hints at it in the assurance of pardon we read when he says righteousness and peace kiss each other. And Christians believe that this happened on the cross. The cross of Christ. Some people say that the cross is all about God's love, not judgment. It's the sign that God just overlooks sin. That's wrong. The message of the cross is not that God chooses forgiveness instead of justice. The message of the cross is that God's forgiveness comes through justice. It's because he punished my sin in the person of his son that he can now turn to me in forgiveness. God cannot forgive anyone without punishing sin. But once Christ died for sin, forgiveness became a matter of justice. You hear that? 1 John 1, 9, do you remember that verse? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and, can anybody, just. He is faithful and just to forgive us. God doesn't just forgive. If your faith is in Jesus, God's justice demands that he forgive. Think about that. So for God to punish you for sins that have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ would be unjust. God's justice has been satisfied. All that's left is mercy. So what does that mean? 
What does that mean? For God to mercifully render to each one according to his works. Because that's, that's what ultimately the teaching of the text is. That he will render to each one according to his works, but always in mercy. So what does it mean for him to mercifully, mercifully render to each one according to his works? I've got three answers very quickly, too quickly. I wish we had more time here, but we need to come to, to an end. So let me just say these three things to answer that question. First, it means... That what will come to light when we stand before God on that day is that his grace at work in you and I produced works. Patience in well-doing that will lead to glory and honor and peace and ultimately eternal life. Isn't that good news? I don't know if it sunk in, so let me say it again, okay? God's grace at work in you will produce works patience and well-doing that will lead to glory and honor and peace and ultimately eternal life. In the gospel, God is remaking us into people who can and who do do good. Of course, not apart from him and not perfectly. But nevertheless, it's true. Secondly, mercy means, according to our confession, which is a beautiful document and, and really beautiful at this point, it means that God will not be exacting but will look for every sincere effort on our part no matter how marred by weakness and imperfection. Every good desire and effort will be magnified on the day of his judgment. All of our incompleteness will be covered the way a proud parent does with their children and all for Christ's sake. Isn't that great? That's what it'll mean. And then lastly, mercy will mean joy and wonder and worship, even in the experience of being exposed. If you're a Christian and you ever get exposed, isn't that a scary thing? Southwest commercials want to get away. Have you seen those? You know, that moment of, oh. In those moments, if you're a Christian, even those moments of being exposed like that can, can lead to joy and wonder and worship. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine God bringing up our sins and not having feelings of condemnation because that is our experience most often, isn't it? But it is not the Christian experience. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means there's another experience possible. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 7, contrasts godly grief with worldly grief. And the difference, he says, is that worldly grief is crushing. It's condemnation. You, you wilt. It destroys you. But godly grief is sadness, but also with hope, with joy, with wonder, with worship. And the result is you change. And so the godly response to sin when you see it in yourself, is to feel sorrow for sure, but immediately on the other side of that sorrow is to begin to worship and wonder and marvel because you belong to Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners. And that even your sin can't cancel out his love for you. And so the Bible's clear that when we stand, when we stand before God, we will give an account. But what if that experience is not the cause for sorrow, but for joy and worship? Because true, we will see more, you will never see more of your sin than you will on the day where you stand before him, but you will never see more of his grace than on the day that you stand before him. And that's why it'll be an experience of wonder and joy and worship. Christian, you have nothing to fear. The experience of judgment will be transformed by mercy. He judges by Christ Jesus. And so in Jesus, there is judgment and mercy leading to eternal life. Without him, there is wrath and fury. The choice is before every one of us. Let's pray. And so, Father, 
We thank you for these words that have been given to us for our edification, and we pray that you would help us to make sense of them, that you would help, uh, help us settle our hearts underneath the hard reality of this idea of being, of being um, brought before you and all of the hidden secret deeds of darkness in our lives being brought to light. For many of us, it's an absolutely terrifying prospect, and yet uh, you, you tell us here that though it should spur us to obedience, it is ultimately not something, if we belong to you, if we are hidden with, with you in Christ, if, we, if our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if we have turned to him in faith, then we have nothing to fear. That even, even the day of, of, of that experience will be mercy. And in that mercy, there will come wonder and joy and even worship. And so help us to not wait until that day to magnify your, your love and your grace to us. But even as we contemplate our sins this morning, to know that we can turn away from ourselves and turn to you and to celebrate that you're a God who does not love the righteous. You're a God who loves sinners. You're a God who justifies sinners. You're a God who heals not the, the healthy who need no doctor but the sick. Caused, uh, knowing the truth about ourselves to cause us to erupt in praise and thanksgiving and, and glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the good news of the gospel is that the final verdict uh, has been secured by Jesus Christ, and so we can carry it into our daily lives. We're not, uh, the Bible talks about hope, the hope of justification on the day of final rendering but that word hope doesn't mean that it's that it's uncertain or that we we can't be sure of it being ours it's a it's an absolute certainty that still lays into the future lays in the future but that can be brought into the present that we can live from every single day and so we go we go in the hope of the final justification that will be ours in Jesus Christ knowing that it's been secured by him so that now I can raise my hands over you and speak these words as if they're just as true uh, that they are just as true of you today as they will be on that final day. And so enter into the promise of the Father uh, in these words as they are spoken over your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.